Hi, this is Dan Mays from Clutch, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, this is Austin Mead, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, everybody, this is Joel Hoekstra of Whitesnake and Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. Hey, folks, this is Neil Fallon from Clutch, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. episode 490 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 490, we have three very special guests joining us. We have Mr. Neil Fallon of the band Clutch, who's going to be joining us in just a moment to talk about the new album and a tour they're doing. Joining us in just a little bit, Mr. Joel Hoekstra of Whitesnake and the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, talking to us about uh, the upcoming 2022 holiday tour, which will be coming into Pittsburgh on the 17th of December. Tickets for that will be going on sale this week. Special $25 tickets the first week they're on sale. So I'm going to get uh, people up to date on what they can expect from this year's show. And then joining us in just a little bit, an artist we want to introduce you to who's actually on his third album, uh, Mr. Austin Mead, we'll get to in just a little while. So uh, Neil Fallon, a longtime singer of Clutch, Maryland, uh, one of the great hard rock bands to come out of that area, the D.C., Baltimore kind of area. Uh, Clutch is no stranger to Pittsburgh, been here many times, almost somewhat of a hometown show. Uh, and them playing stage A.E. is also uh, something we've seen many, many times over the years, always put on a slamming show. They've got a new album coming out this week here on the 16th of September. The album's called Sunrise on Slaughter Beach. We're going to play you a little taste of that. We'll get into that interview with Mr. Neil Fallon. My pleasure to welcome to Iron City Rocks. We have on the line from Clutch, Neil Fallon on the line. How are you doing, Neil? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, you're coming up. We're now talking the day before the, you know, the worldwide release of Sunrise on Slaughter Beach, uh, your latest album. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, as a musician, how that build up to the, you know, finally getting the music out? I mean, obviously you guys release singles and videos. But is release day still something that you kind of circle on the calendar and get a little excitement about? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a lot of energy and work is put into this thing, uh, not just writing the songs, but, you know, um, we we are our own record label, so we have to take on that. And thankfully, we have a lot of good people around us that assist us in that endeavor. But this particular re- release is sort of unique 
um, and I think this is probably universal for a lot of bands, is that we recorded this album, it's almost a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically, uh, you know, you could finish an album and then have it come out three months later. Uh, but, you know, not to overstate the obvious, you know, supply chains and uh, sure. the, the vinyl pressing industry is not is is working at just a fraction of its capacity right now. So sure. it's, been, it's been frustrating, but uh, we're finally here and uh, eager to get it out to the world. It's interesting you mentioned that with, with vinyl. Um, obviously, you know, unless you're Taylor Swift or Metallica, who seem to have, you know, a pressing plant at their own disposal. But um, do you take that into consideration in the actual street date? You know, when the vinyl, you know, for a time, a lot of artists, it's okay, the CD is going to come out, the stream is going to be available in May, but you won't get the, seed, the, the vinyl until July, maybe. Is it to the point now with vinyl being so prevalent in the in, in the market that you hold the release date until that's available? Yeah, that's what we did, basically. I mean, we could have released this streaming, you know, months and months ago, but sure. you know, um, with hard rock and metal, I do think that the the appetite for vinyl is genuine. I mean, I do sure. think people actually do listen to these records, whereas, you know, some of the larger acts like Adele or what have you, you know, her album is going to be at the bookstore, and that's what you get your sister-in-law for her birthday because you don't know what to get, and she doesn't even own a record yeah. player. I know that's yeah. a sweeping, sweeping generalization, but um, so smaller bands uh, kind of have to wait in line behind that, and, and we're one of them. And, uh, you know, the vinyl pressing plant is going to take the order of 100,000 a lot quicker than the one for 10,000. Sure. Um, so, yeah, it, it is a we do kind of use vinyl as the as the compass on when to release and also see who else is releasing records on a day because you don't want to compete with that. Yeah, that's a great point. You didn't want to be, you know, the band that dropped the album the same week as Megadeth that were, you know, so, you know, certain bands, I'm sure, that, that kind of, you see their record date and you kind of move it back. Does does it impact the, the attention you put into to cover art much, or is that, obviously with metal and hard rock t-shirt, the t-shirt industry, you know, that market is important. So obviously, you know, the graphic art is important, but does going back to 12 by 12 instead of 4 by 4 you know, weigh into decisions on, on who's going to do the art and, and such? Um, yeah, I think it's, I mean, heavy metal art typically is pretty dense and it, yeah. it can be very, it's not graphic usually. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of times that gets lost when it's reduced to a thumbnail on a phone. Yeah. Uh, and I think, but it's a skilled artist uh, can kind of thread the needle and get the most, best of both worlds. I kind of see the, my philosophy is that the, the album cover should be kind of simple and arresting. And if you want to do the really dense, complicated stuff, save that for the gatefold. Um, if that makes any sense. That makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're looking at the cover art of this album and it certainly captures your attention, gets you in the spirit of the album quickly. Um, you know, even at a, I'm looking at a two by two version of it right now. Mm-hmm. Um, these particular songs, um, you mentioned, you know, you finished this like a year ago. Um, were most of these songs that you guys kind of toyed around with during lockdown as far as writing? Not really. I mean, for the majority of that 
period of time, we focused on our live streams that we called Doom Saloon, or Live from the Doom Saloon. And that was a great exercise, basically, just to stay in shape physically. Music, music is a physical thing, and if you get out of shape, it gets harder to execute. Uh, but we also realized that the novelty of that, it kind of wore off after number four. Um, and we could have done another one, but I think that the impulse to write something new is something that any artist is going to have to give into sooner or later. And uh, we kind of, starting in the summer of last year, that's when, like, you know, spring uh, is when we kind of really started kicking around ideas um, and started focusing on that. Yeah, that certainly makes you guys kind of unique. A, a lot of, you know, the artists that are putting on material now, a lot of it is truly COVID. You know, we were stuck. We were supposed to be on tour, so we decided to write an album. You know, musicians do what they know. Um, this album, decent amount shorter than its predecessor, Book of Bad Decisions. Um, but, you know, when you listen to it, I think what I like about this, it sort of reminds me of, not to compare it to Van Halen 1, Van Halen 2, but the fact that it kind of goes after the listener, grabs your attention, does what it needs to do, and lets go. Was that was that something that you guys thought about? You know, there's a decent number less tracks, but was it just we're going to give them you know, no filler kind of thing, or is it just this is the evolution of where you're at? Well, I think that we, we're of the mind that if we had to do Book of Bad Decisions over again, we wouldn't have put all 15 songs on there. And that was sort of like us not being able to get to a consensus about what songs to take off. So we just said, screw it, put them all on there. Um, sure. This time around, we recorded more songs, you know, than are on the album. But we were of the minds like, let's make it. I think the word we were kind of keeping in mind was efficient. Um, yeah. We didn't need two variations of an idea. Uh, we needed one of everything. And, you know, most of our favorite classic rock records are, are approximately that length, like 35 minutes. You know, it's like four or five songs aside. And um, I, I think it's definitely a – I'd rather have people say at the end of that album they wanted more rather than say, oh, I could have stopped 10 minutes ago. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah you no, one, no one walks away from rain and blood and says, boy, if they would have just added – three or four more tracks, that yeah. would have been perfect. You know, yeah. it, it, the entire album it didn't even, side A and side B of a cassette. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, I'll, I'll freely admit as a music fan, there are bands out there that I won't man mention that did the two CD full-on 70-some minutes per CD. Yeah. You don't make it to this <laughs> the second CD. It's like, I'm not hearing anything, you know, that's really drawing me to say, okay, I need to listen to that second disc again. Um, and But I think the CD kind of encouraged people to fill it. And um, yeah. I think, if anything, vinyl has encouraged bands to get, like you said, efficient. That's a great word for it. Um, I think there's something to be said about parameters. Like, you know, when, when you go into a studio and you can have infinite tracks, yeah, and you have, uh, or you could stream and have infinite amount of tracks. It, it can really get watered down, and I think it's important to have guardrails and say, okay, we're only going to use 24 tracks, as if this were a 24 track studio in 1983. Uh, yeah, and digital trickery try to keep that 
to a bare minimum because eventually you're going to have to do this on stage. And it's really easy to paint yourself into a, a, a corner that way. Yeah, yeah, you're out touring with a, an ensemble the size of the Almond Brothers because you built yourself seven guitars and um, dueling drums. And um, was it a situation when you record personally? Are, are you a, of a mindset when you do takes, for example? You know, I'll do a couple and take the best, and that's it. Or, or do you have to kind of fight the, you know, the urge with? You know, you know, digital recording that it's so easy to go back and just wipe a track, do it over. Do you have to fight that kind of perfectionist sort of feeling? Um, yeah, I think I'm always like reminded of this kind of famous story about Pablo Picasso uh, getting banned from the Louvre because he would go in there and touch up his own paintings because <laughs> uh, he felt like it was a thing that should never end. And I kind of get that musically. Like, yeah, you know, when a recording is done, it's kind of dead in a way. Uh, for us, the thrill is on stage. Uh, but, you know, in a practical sense, usually the way it works is I will do anywhere from five to eight passes of a song, one after the other. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the producer will pick out the best bits and get one or two tracks of the best performance, and then I'll try to match that or beat it. Because mm -hmm. um, ultimately what happens is verses, you typically have one vocal track, choruses might have two, or and then a, maybe a harmony as a third track. Um, and that's, that's kind of the way I like to work. I've also worked with producers who micromanage syllables, and that drives me yeah. fatty. I can't stand it. Yeah. Um, it's, it's much easier to get a whole performance because you get an arc of emotion that you don't when you're just doing it on a granular level. Yeah, yeah, and you you certainly don't want it to sound, you know, like a cut-and-paste job. And curious, when, when you do these takes, how often is the first take the one that you kind of end up emulating? Is it, are, are you the kind that, you know, 90% of the time you end up going back to the first time through? No, it's usually not. Um, you know, the way I sing, it takes me a while for the kind of vocal cords to warm up. And okay. also, um, kind of like, I forget what the term is. You know, some in sports, they call it the zone. You know, when yeah. you're done, you're not even thinking about what you're doing. You're just executing it by muscle memory. And that's usually take number four and five. Usually, that those consistently take up the bulk of the final product. For whatever reason, that's where the sweet spot is for me. That's interesting to hear that from a series. A lot of guitarists you'll hear, well, you know, I did it solo 15 times and I come back to the first one. You know, that it's, it seems like sometimes they lose the spontaneity, but you're dealing with, like you said, it's, it's a muscle more so than, than a creative thing. Yeah, really I think cool. so like Tim, for example, his guitar solos are almost always spontaneous. And... Yeah then he has to basically relearn what he has. Yeah, that's, that's that's the hard part with, with the guitar. It's like you hit that little moment of inspiration and have to spend hours chasing what you did. And especially you figure you, you did these songs a year ago. Um, now you're, you know, going to be kind of unleashing into the world and, you know, really being have the freedom to inject anything you want in your set list. But now you've got to go back and remember how you played them. Um, yeah. 
That's what we've been doing for our sound checks for the past week. Is it um, the situation with with your set? I mean, are you able to infuse? I mean, this is you guys have got a lot of albums under your belt now at this point, and you know, there's certain songs fans you know demand of you guys. Uh, does it get harder for you to put new music into the set, or, or your your audience do you feel pretty open to to the new stuff? I think. Um, all right, we're lucky in that Clutch fans do have a great appetite for new material. Uh, and I think there's also, you know, this is probably common for any bands. There's different levels of fandom. There's the person yeah. who really wants to hear the demo version of the unreleased track that only came out in Japan in 1996 yeah. because he thinks that's the best. Um, there's a joy in like that kind of attention. Then there's also the people who are kind of more passive listeners and they just want to hear the, the top 10 that the Spotify algorithm spits at them or the the, yeah. the, the afternoon DJ. And I think they're both valid. Uh, you, you try to give people both those worlds. Um, we kind of deal with it by taking turns writing a set list. Like tonight, Tim's going to write the set list, so tomorrow Dan's going to write it. Um, and that keeps us engaged because if we did the same thing every night, it would – make tours go by a lot slower. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I, I, I look at, you know, a band like yours, and I, I think, you know, you guys have, in a way, you know, when I think of Clutch, I don't think of, of casual fans. And maybe maybe that's my misconception. And I also don't think that there's necessarily one song that I say, you know, that that was the one that put you guys on the map. You know, I think there's, you know, you guys have, to me, always been kind of like, an early Metallica where it was a collective body of work that draws people in, in the, you know, the energy and the, the, you know, the organic nature of your live performance of really cool songs, and, which probably gives you some flexibility. Maybe I'm totally off base, but. Um, no, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think sometimes the worst thing that can happen to a person's music career is to get a smash hit right out of the gates. Yeah. Cause one maybe they're, uh, expectations of the way the world is it gets skewed that way and a lot of times it's a very bitter pill to swallow when you don't have the follow-up smash hit you know or or you're uh you're kind of indentured to play this one song for the rest of your life uh live music fans are different i think because they make a point to come to the shows and make an experience out of it um they're much more open-minded about it and um you know, I kind of like it. It's, it. It takes a lot longer to build up a fan base this way, but they're much yeah. more dedicated than the person who heard the song a thousand times uh, over the summer at every party yeah. he or she went to. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, the the, the upside to that, and, and I hope for your sake, is that fan base tends to stay around a lot longer. You know, you're not the flavor of the day, you know. It's, you know, so when you're you're maybe not on the radio constantly, you know, people aren't going to forget who you were because they that isn't why they fell in love with your music. Um, so that's a I think a you think a, a, a lot of metal bands I think have kind of benefited from that. But you think back to you know especially like the late '80s where a band might have shown up on you know MTV with a, especially the power ballads. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know it's it's hard to. 
you know, when you sell three million copies of your first album largely on the success of one song mm-hmm. and musical winds change, it becomes very difficult to, to continue to generate that kind of revenue, keep that kind of payroll. Um, you know, your organization, you know, because it is a business uh, moving, you know, where you guys you know, have, a, I think, a, a deeper set of roots, I guess, the weather ebb and flow in the music industry. So that's, a, that's a great thing to have. Um, you guys are, are rolling in on Tuesday uh, with Helmuth and Quicksand and J.D. Pincus. Um, roughly how long of a set do you guys do? Just, you know, I, that's always one thing people are, you know, curious about, like, how long they can expect from you guys. We play 20 songs. We do a 17-song set and then a three-song encore, which gets the whole thing clocked in of usually around 90 minutes. Um, sometimes it's shorter if, the, if we're playing faster, shorter songs. If we're playing some of the longer uh, jams, it can stretch out a bit more. Um, but that's, you know, and Helmet and Quicksand, I believe they're playing 40 minutes each, and uh, J.D. Pincus is playing half an hour. So, you know, by time, time J.D. goes on and we go off, it's 8, 9, 10, 11, but it's almost pushing five hours of, you know, yeah. music. So for, for the ticket price, people are way, way getting their money's worth for this event. Um, that's fantastic. Um, just another thing for fans coming to the show, do you have the vinyl like out at the merch booth or is that something? We we should. We should. We should. Okay. Um, fantastic. Fingers crossed. Excellent. Well, Neil's doing a lot of back package packaging right now. Yeah. Spending way too much time looking at UPS and FedEx and yeah. that kind of stuff. I, I certainly understand. But Neil, I want to thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You'll be here Tuesday. AJE seems like a. Uh, I was kind of joking with them that it seems like you guys do almost a residency. You're here so often. Uh, it's AJE, so it'd be great to have you back again uh, this this time. Man. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. The Pittsburgh crowd is always great. And a big thank you once again to Mr. Neil Fallon. He'll be here on the 20th of September. That's a Tuesday night doing a show at Stage AE. Um, like I said, they're no strangers to Stage AE, and I think. Uh, they're one of those bands that you see them once, you see them every time, uh, which is always cool. Great to see a band like that um, out of Maryland. Their new album, Sunrise on Slaughter Beach, will be available on the 16th from Weathermaker Music. So you'll get a chance to, uh, if you haven't heard the singles, uh, digest that album so you're ready and, and uh, ready to go for the show on Tuesday. Turning our attention now to Mr. Joel Hoekstra. Obviously, uh, no stranger to the show if you're a regular listener. I think we talked to Joel almost every year since he was in Night Ranger uh, with one project or another. Uh, Joel Hoekstra's 13, guitarist of Whitesnake, played with Cher, uh, and probably his biggest profile gig with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Uh, They've announced their 2022 tour. They're going to be coming to Pittsburgh for two shows on December 17th. There's a 3 o'clock and I believe it's 7.30 show. Those tickets go on sale on September 16th. For the first week, they're only $25. If you've ever been to a TSO show, you know well beyond $25 value. If you have not been to a TSO show, how much cheaper can you get than $25 for an arena show with the most bombastic production you will ever see? Um, an amazing, amazing performance every year. So I highly recommend you get out and get those tickets. Joel was kind enough to give us a call, talk to us about that, a little bit about what's going on with Joel Hoekstra 13, uh, some solo shows he's doing with Brandon Gibbs. So without further ado, Mr. Joel Hoekstra. Christmas Eve. 
to welcome back to Iron City Rocks for another year. We have Mr. Joel Hoekstra on the line. How you doing, Joel? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on. It's a pleasure, as always. Um, as I said before we went on air, it seems like we blink our eyes, and we're back at this again. Tickets go on sale in a matter of days for the for the 2022 run. You guys are going to be doing the Ghost of Christmas Eve here in Pittsburgh on the 17th of December, so we'll get you before Christmas this time, or last year we were a little after Christmas. Um, at this point, I mean, other than kind of being aware of what they have in store for you to perform, is there a lot of preparation you're doing outside of, you know, just trying to do media work at this point? Yeah, usually we get a song list, I would say, right about this time. Uh, from and by song list, I don't necessarily mean set list because it's right. usually quite a bit more on the song list than we actually end up doing. But it's stuff that they want to take a look at in production rehearsals while everybody kind of debates what the, the running order should be and what the actual set should be. And so, as musicians, we do our best to be on top of that. So, yeah, I mean, I'd say prep for me usually begins, I'd say you know, three, four weeks before we get to the first rehearsal. I like to be the guy that knows it like it's a show on day one of rehearsals rather than go go into rehearsals and go, give me a few days to round into form here. So uh, I I do quite a bit of prep work. Yeah, as I imagine, it it takes quite a bit. Do do you guys have the benefit of, like, has someone done, like, a complete score of this music for you guys, or do you have to, you know, when you're introducing a song that maybe I'm playing a couple years, do you have to go back and listen to the record? So it's a combination of those things. There's a scores that exist for most of this stuff. Um, however, as rock guitarists, the majority of the time we approach it pretty much like, you know, your standard rock guitarist would. You listen to the album and you, you know, go through it by ear. But if there's challenging passages or things of that nature, you know, that there's been times where I've suggested, like, asked for the score so I can take a look at what it actually is I'm trying to be doing, you know, if, just to make sure that I'm not spending a lot of time on something that's going to be wrong when I get to rehearsal. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I think about you know, some of the rock musicians, you know, when they when you say they're going to go back and listen to the record, uh, I think the Lord only knows what key they're going to end up playing it in. Um, but, you know, and you're dealing with, with a pretty large ensemble of musicians, so it's important you're all on the same page. Um, do, do you get much room for improvisation in, in the music? Are there spots in songs where they kind of give you a little bit of uh, free reign? Um, I would say it's not an improv gig. Sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, things with TSO are more about the the syncing of the music with the production. Sure. I would say is a big thing. So a lot of times we're down to the sixteenth note in terms of the lighting with what's happening musically. Sure. So um, you know, it's, for me, it's more of a I consider it to be um. A, a musical gig and that that requires uh, accuracy and and a, the ability to perform on stage and keep people like visually interested in what's happening. Um, those yeah. are those are really my focus on the gig more than like hey let me take this section and jam. Now there are times where during the tour you know things start to evolve a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, particularly for me, like so the second half there's always an acoustic song. 
that I end up playing was usually with Kayla, Kayla Reeves. And, uh, those are, those are the songs that usually I start to do my own thing with a little bit as the tour goes on. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, there's, there's some room for it, but it's not a, it's not a heavy gig in terms of improv. It certainly isn't like, you know, going in and, and playing a jazz gig or something sure. like that. Yeah, it's it's uh, obviously with a video, you know, that's adds such an element to, to live music. I think that, you know, you, you talk to bands from the 70s, you know, they didn't have to worry about, you know, other than a very small handful would have pyro maybe to worry about, but you didn't have synchronized LED screens and, you know, the, the type of production you guys have. Um, when, when you're looking at the music, um, is it... Is it something like when you do these rehearsals, do they video you guys so you can see, you know, because you, you mentioned you have to be engaging, you know, more so than, than maybe in a normal show. You know, when you tour with Cher, 99% of the people are going to be watching Cher. But in this show, you, Chris, you know, you guys are, are, are somewhat the featured attraction visually. Yeah, I would say beyond the production itself, which is probably the sure. star of the show with DSO. That, uh, you know, certainly the uh, people up front, which are a lot of the diehard fans, um, I think they appreciate the level of interaction with them. And, and that's just something from years of gigs that you get used to as a player to, you know, number one, not to be the guy staring down at his guitar neck because you're closing yourself off from all the people that are watching you, you know. Right. I think people enjoy that level of like eye contact. It's very simple things, you know, they learn as a pro, but it, it, it's really important. Those are important lessons to learn. You know, people want to feel like it's a two way street when they're there to watch you. Um, they don't want to feel like they're just being spoken to. They want to feel like they're affecting you as well. So, um, keeping that avenue open, I think as a, as a performer, that's something you learn kind of early on. Hopefully, if you spend enough time gigging and realize that that helps with connection with the audience and so uh yeah it's definitely seen, you know chris and uh, all the guys in tso everybody up there you know great performers so inspiring to work with and you know we, we always do a good job of lighting the fire under each other's butts and making sure that we're <laughs> doing the best we can up there sure what when you're doing this particular run um how important is it to, to kind of keep your you know your physical routine outside of music do you get a chance to run i know you like to play basketball for example is there time to do that during this tour i know with you know two a day shows you probably get a decent amount of on your fitbit for those particular days but i mean off days and, and things like that do you have time to kind of sneak in some things to take care of yourself you know i'd say i have pretty much run the gamut in terms of experimentation with that over the years because I've, I've been doing this tour since 2010 so mm -hmm. there's been some where I haven't worked out at all <laughs> for like the two months where I'll just go well I mean I'm getting exercise up there it's not like I'm not getting yeah. any workout like you're talking about and then there's been other times where even on the two show days I'm like you're getting up you're getting in the gym and uh, I mean I was doing cardio and weights every day even on the two show days getting in for the gym for an hour and 15 minutes which was uh intense to try and do um so i have done that for a couple tours as well uh, i'd say they they each have their pros and cons you know uh i'd say in general i felt healthier on those times where i was working out that heavily but there were times where i would get to the end of a two show day and i felt like man the tank might be on e right now yeah you know? <laughs> yeah you kind of maybe push it a little so, toward 
is it hard to kind of maintain you know you know a lot of musicians i think you know they get to your your level and they've been doing this long enough that you know it's amazing how many people get really into nutrition and health when you're doing a tour like this i mean with you know i'm sure most cities they kind of roll out the welcome wagon when you guys get there and there's cakes and you always see you know the promoters bringing all kinds of nice food and things like that is that kind of hard that temptation when you're backstage to kind of avoid some of that stuff it's hardest on the bus i mean it's sort of like as we go we 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 accrue this uh this just plethora of like snacks and things like yeah. that on the butts. And that can be, you know, it's one thing when it's in catering and you can go, just don't go into catering, you know, yeah. just don't go, don't, don't leave the dressing room. As soon as you go into catering, you're going to be looking at like eight cakes. Yeah. You know, so don't go there. Um, but when it comes on the bus <laughs> and you're sitting in the, you're sitting on the bench and you're staring across and you're like, well, there are the chocolate yeah. covered peanuts, like a foot from my hand here. So, yeah. Um, you know, that's, that can be the difficult, uh, the thing right there. The, 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 and plus when you're just sitting on the bus, you're going, I mean, technically I'm not doing anything, you know, so it's the eat just to eat moment, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, that long monotonous ride that I think people kind but yeah, of. Yeah. It can, it can be with share. That was very difficult. They had cake every gig. And it was like, oh, my gosh. And they, you know, even when we were in the Vegas residency, it was like, you know, every every show was they would the the joke became we had so many birthdays in a row that, well, it's no, nobody's birthday, but let's just get cake anyway. So they would just make up reasons like and so and there was always, you know, if it was your birthday, it was your picture on top of the cake. Yeah. Right. So there were times where it was like we'd show up and it was like, hey, we're celebrating Latoya Jackson's birthday. And it would be like a picture of Latoya Jackson for no reason on top of a cake, you know, just so we could have cake. Just an excuse to have cake. That's, that's a great reason. Yep. Um, now, you are going to be doing some shows um, coming up yourself um, outside of, of the band um, coming up with uh, Brandon. Or you want to talk a little bit about what people can expect from those shows with Brandon Gibbs? Yeah, we just set out and we're doing some acoustic shows. Let's see, September 22nd, on the, we're at Rams Head in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, September 23rd at the Landis Theater in Vineland, New Jersey. Um, 24th, we're at Daryl's House in Pauling, New York. 25th, New Hope Winery, Pennsylvania. 27th, we're at 89 North, uh, Patchogue, New York, Long Island. Um, Let's see, 28th, Broadbrook Opera House, um, Broadbrook, Connecticut, and the 29th at Tupelo Music Hall in Derry, New Hampshire. Um, so, you know, Brandon's somebody I met back in about 2016 on the Monsters of Rock cruise, and, um, you know, I liked his material, and he's a great, great guy, and so he, he said, hey, I do acoustic shows sometimes and have a second guitar, so do you ever want to do them? And I said, sure, and, you know, so we sort of put together this set where we play a little bit of White Snake, we play a little bit of Poison because of Brandon's affiliation with those guys, and some of his Devil City Angels songs, his band with Ricky Rocket, and uh, his Brandon's solo stuff. We do some of my solo stuff from the Joel Hoaxer's 13 albums and some of our favorite covers and just kind of have a good time. So they're very casual, and it's a great opportunity for the diehard fans to actually come and hang out and talk with us and get guitar picks and things of that nature sure. as opposed to coming out and seeing me with TSO where there's going to be 10,000 people. So. You get a chance to yeah. do a, a show without a tuxedo. It's kind of a nice, <laughs> casual. Um, is, yes. Is sometimes doing a show like that, I mean, does that really kind of 
recharge your battery as a musician to be able to kind of do that intimate, free form, you know, play whatever you want, you know, whatever hits you on the bus that day, you guys might want to work out and throw into the set. Is is that kind of, you know, at this stage, you're kind of one of those things you really look forward to doing? Um, you know, I usually just try and find the positives in whatever it is I'm doing with uh, with the, the music end of things. So, you know, I mean, I love playing the huge gigs and the giant arenas and all that stuff. But like, you know, going out and playing the, the uh, playing the acoustic shows of Brandon, I have a blast. And it's just the two of us. And I love the simplicity of it. It's like, yeah. hey, no band, no crew, two guys with acoustic guitars. We roll in, we set up up and we're going so um you know we have a good time and i like the fact that it's a little bit because i mean i actually sing lead on some stuff here and there which i don't do pretty much anywhere else and um obviously being able to do the joel hoaxers 13 songs and things like that you know that's that's great fun for me i'm not able to do that anywhere else so um it's always just about looking at like what are the cool things about this and brand is just a terrific guy you know he's just a, he's a good friend and um, very easy to get along with and um so we we have a great time on these runs yeah it sounds like it sounds like a fun thing hopefully we'll to see more of those in the future um you mentioned joel hoaxers 13 um can we anticipate at some point some new music coming out of yeah yeah just finished up the guitars on the third album uh, for that so that's um those that haven't got those dying to live came out in 2015 and running games was in 2021 and uh um, you know it's vinnie apice on drums again tony franklin on bass Derek Terrinian on keys uh vocals are are in progress right now my friend jeff scott soto is going to be singing the background vocals on it as he's always done for me on these and helped me out so um you know it'd be an all-star lineup for everybody and uh and looking forward to getting it out there yeah i mean to say the least an all-star lineup you're, you're talking about some of the best at every instrument up and down the line um that's got to be somewhat intimidating to sing with jeff in the background you know i'd be tempted to let jeff sing and i'll take the background and tune me down um such an amazing amazing singer and uh so that'll be fantastic to get that out well joel i want to thank you so much again you're going to be rolling in pittsburgh december 17th this year for two shows obviously they'll be sold out as is every year and we look forward to seeing you when you get into town man yeah, thanks. Can't wait. Hey, Pittsburgh is such a great rock town. Love the arena, too. Um, so just looking forward to seeing you guys. Hopefully everybody comes on out, and, and uh, let's let's get some first-timers out there and, and those that have been. Let's you know keep the tradition going. Last but not least, we're going to turn our attention to Austin Mead. Austin will be coming into town to do a show at the Craft House on the 18th. His uh, latest album, Black Sheep, was released in 2021. Um uh, great music um got a lot of different mixes and styles i i love an artist like this when you google them and you get descriptions back of the music that his are all over the map so instead of trying to explain it to you we're going to play his latest single rose romance going to get right into that interview with austin mead I first on the list 
Pleasure to welcome Dyer and City Rocks. We have on the line Austin Mead. How you doing, Austin? I'm doing well, just living it up. That's that's I think in in this day and age, I think we've all learned that that's about all we can hope for. Um, you're out on the road, rolling into Pittsburgh uh, to play a show at the Craft House on the 18th. Um, got a lot going on with your career, a lot of different things. Um, I have to admit, I I caught your video for Varsity Type, but I was like, this is. This is an interesting mix of, of different things. If someone were to say to you, you know, where do you belong in 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 what section of a you know kind of rewind time to a record store? What section of the the store do you belong in? Do you do you kind of see yourself in the rock section, country section? Where where do you kind of? Feel uh, I'm in alt rock, probably. That's how I feel. We are now. A lot of people think that we're some form or another of uh of rock generally seem, seems to be where we fit in we've opened you know i started opening for folks down in like the texas area and so maybe because of that some people think we're a little country but then we've done metal tours and played a lot of metal festivals too so we kind of fit on both sides of it but i think that's the beauty of uh making music is there's no rules you know yeah, that that's exactly it. The um, from from a what influenced you as a singer? Um, you know, in in your kind of former years, was there something that you kind of said, "Yeah, that's 
you know, that's the moment when I said, I, you know, I want to take this serious. I want to do this for a living. Was, was there somebody that, that you, you know, kind of latched onto that made you think that that's, that's a career move for me? Um, I just kind of stumbled into it, to be honest. Uh, I definitely had people that I was fans of their songwriting. Um, probably early on, it was a lot of Tom Petty and Ryan Adams and Cody Canada from uh, Cross Canadian Ragweed back in the day. And um, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's I've, I've always grown up on like 80s hair metal and stuff. So I'm a big fan of the guitar. And, you know, the live show having a lot of energy. And so I just started, I've, I've originally played drums for some other folks while I was in college mm-hmm. and then just decided I was tired of playing cover songs. I wanted to try my own thing. And then, I don't know, man, I guess I just got lucky and people started, you know, throwing me a gig here or there. And that's really what it takes is one or two people at the beginning giving you the opportunity to get in front of folks and, uh, I don't know. I just kind of kept kept going from there, and I'm really competitive with myself about trying to make each thing we do better than the last. Mm-hmm. And so it's a lot of uh, a lot of that, like being hard on yourself, I guess you could say. But as far as actual singing wise, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm not like classically trained. I just sure. kind of do whatever I feel like I can do. But I'm I'm the simple man version of uh, <laughs> a lot of the folks out there that do it for a living. But yeah, yeah man. I guess, I guess if I was to kind of pinpoint it, like as far as early on in my career, there was a lot of Tom Petty there. There was a lot of Ryan Adams. And um, I mean, shit, I wish I could sing like David Coverdale, but I don't think anybody can. Yeah, I think David Coverdale wishes he could sing like David Coverdale, but that's a whole different podcast. Um, you know, and it's it's really interesting you mentioned Tom Petty. And, you know, you think of some of, of the people we think about is, is – pure you know gems of singers don't necessarily have that operatic voice you know i i know i was driving in a car over the weekend and on the 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 uh, satellite stevie nicks came on i mean and she's a, you know technically a great singer but it's that gravel in her voice i think that really makes it unique you know tom petty was by no means you know would someone say boy he was a pure singer singer but yeah you know, it really he had a way of speaking through his music and, and, and so identifiable. You, you mentioned the, the inf- or your early days playing drums, and I think to another singer, um, Steven Tyler, who was a drummer. Do you think, you know, doing that maybe helped you develop as a guitarist playing the drums? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm still, you know, trying to work on guitar stuff all the time, but it definitely made it easier to understand and communicate with the band. I think a lot of, you know, one thing that people never really ask me, but I think it's pretty crucial is playing drums kind of, it taught me how to develop my, uh, my lyrics and cadences, like fitting them into lines Mm -hmm. and stuff. So I also, I grew up a huge Mac Miller fan. Mm -hmm. And so um, like the way that he forms lyrics, you know, and the way he shapes his sentences and melodies, uh, it, he does it so uniquely and so does Alex Turner of Arctic monkeys. And so like those guys, I feel like play off of the rhythms of the words and like where they put it in there. It's, you know, it's poetry. So to me, drumming kind of helped me figure out what might be cool here or there with those rhythms. And then, yeah, I mean, guitar is just a whole different ball game. I'm 
always, I mean, there's a million different ways to play 12 chords, you know, and uh, yeah, there's, there's a million and a half ways to make them sound bad. There's only a couple ways to make them sound good together. So finding those pieces of the puzzle, that's really a thing that me and me and my lead player, David Willie, um, we spend a lot of time together trying to figure out how to make the chords more interesting and how to make them match the mood of the song or the theme lyrics. You know, that's how we generally start everything is, okay, we've got this idea for this riff. What am I working on, you know, with lyrics or or melody? Do they seem like they could tell a story together? And then that's kind of where things start. So you, you have lyrics independent, so you're forming those and then trying to marry them with riffs you already have, or do you try to write to the riff? Um, a lot of time. I mean, I'm, it, it does go back and forth, but a lot of times for me, it's like I come up with a short idea or phrase or sometimes even just a pair of words. Mm-hmm. And I try to form a story about that really short, concise pair of words or idea or even a feeling, right, or description of, of a room. And then then we'll sit down with, I mean, we do phone recordings all the time of one-liners or just melodies mm-hmm. or, you know, sure. a 10-second guitar riff or clip. And then we go back and sift through them because a lot of those things come in the middle of nowhere, whether you're driving or about yeah. to fall asleep at night or you're just hysterical at the moment. And you're like, damn, that's a thought I've never even considered in my life. Um like you're talking about varsity type, you know, and th- this record, there's a lot of um, reflections on high school and like early adulthood just after high school. And yeah. I just remember feeling like walking into parties when I should have felt excited that I was even invited to hang out with folks. You know, a lot of times I was like taking a more, uh, I don't know, maybe personal approach to it being like, look at these, you know, yeah. Look at these uh famous kids or whatever, the popular kids, the rich kids, like they don't even know the words to this song that's playing over the radio. They're just only singing like the three words they know. And I was a big music fan, so that would piss me off growing up, yeah. you know. Um so that's where that that whole thing started, is just like the idea of walking through that party and like, you know, you're looking at everyone else and kind of observing, but it's interesting to see a camera observe that person instead. So that's yeah. why that music video starts with me walking through and you're actually observing like the person that's observing everyone else. So it's, it's an interesting point of view, but that's that music video happened like that because that's how the idea of the song started. So yeah. a lot of the videos that we have, I've actually, you know, I, I start writing the song with that idea of the video already in mind because I just think it's interesting. Yeah, and I, and I love that one in particular because I think it's it's a scenario that that so many people can identify with. Um, we had a, had a discussion on our Facebook page not that long ago after Metallica did a show here, and you know a lot of people like to go to concerts just for the event for the party, and, and mm-hmm. you know it got me wondering, you know, <laughs> in that audience, how many people are even aware of you know, the St. Anger album or, you know, uh, you know, things that have come post the black album as a, as a songwriter, do does it, does that really ever factor in when you're looking at the audience? And obviously you want to have people have fun, but does sometimes it, it, it frustrates you when people don't really lock into the message of the song and they're just there to kind of, you know, 
have some drinks and, and kind of party with their friends or is that, you know, is it kind of just all good in your mind as long as people are, are having fun? Man, it, it, we're so new to this. I mean, I've been doing this for almost a decade, but really the last, the last two or three years is whenever people started paying attention. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. just really grateful at the moment that we have opportunities to, to play in front of people. I mean, sure. dude, I live a long, I live a long ways from Pittsburgh. And so the fact that we're coming up there to headline a, a show, no matter how big or small the venue is like, I'm just, I'm pumped if we sell any tickets up there right now, you know, yeah. I mean, there's definitely, we definitely have our strong spots um, where I know we're going to do well. And it's, it, it is a really great feeling whenever you hop out on stage and everybody's already just locked into the first song and they know what's up, but right. man, I, I play a lot of new music at our shows because we've got a new record coming out and we've been working on it for over a year, probably a year and a half. And so mm. we've been playing a lot of those songs at the live show and, Obviously, if they're unreleased, not a lot of people know sure. them. Like there are some repeat folks showing up at shows that have been like, "Oh shit, I remember the Darker Shade of Blue" or mm-hmm. "Quicksand" or whatever new ones are playing. But I like kind of hitting them with, um, <clears throat> sorry, I like kind of hitting them with, you know, some new stuff and making them think, and then getting back to the songs where I think they're gonna know because we have quite a few. I would consider sing along songs for our fan base off of the Black Sheep record. And so, you know, I like it when they like the new stuff because that tells me that we're getting better at what we're doing, right? I have some older fans that'll, and by older, I mean people that have followed us for a longer time, um, that'll ask for like early songs. And me, I'm like, man, I think those songs suck in comparison to what we're doing now. So I kind of enjoy whenever it's the newer stuff they're asking for. And I mean, it's really all in how you think about it in your frame of mind. I'd, I'd hate to go out and do this for a living and, and not enjoy playing music every night because that's the best part. It's yeah. the the part that sucks is, you know, driving 18 hours and, you know, setting up gear and not sleeping for weeks at a time. Yeah. That's the part that sucks. But, yeah. uh, you know, while you're on stage, if people are having a good time, man, that's, that's just great. And it, it also differs depending on if it's a headline show, or if we're, out there opening for folks um right now we're out on this zz top tour and it's definitely a different crowd than we're used to so it's like you kind of got to decide if you know how you're going to approach those shows differently whether it's kind of change up the set list just yeah. a little bit um whether you're going to talk to the crowd or just shut up and just play because you only get you know 30 or 45 minute sets not very long you know right. so yeah, it's a blink of an eye you've, re- you've really got to shove a certain amount of songs in there and pick the best ones. I mean, that is the hardest part about having a lot of music out there now is that getting it down to six or seven songs when you have, I'm not, I don't even know how many we have out, but probably around 40 to 50 something. So to pick out of that, it's, uh, you know, fairly interesting. <laughs> yeah. I remember asking Charlie star of blackberry smoke, this exact same question when, when you're doing, you mentioned doing some like metal shows and in, in ZZ top. And do you have kind of a, a go-to like heavier set list you can pull out um, maybe for a, a, something like that? Or do you kind of just, and I remember Charlie saying, I was quite surprised that they just, we play what we want to play. You know, we, you know, we, we're going to play, you know, one horse town, which is, you know, rather on the countryside of Blackberry Smoke, they just go for it. Do, do you just kind of do what you do or do you do you think about that when you're going into the set list? 
Um, usually I overthink about it for the first <laughs> show of the tour. And then after that, I realize that you just got to do what's best for you. And then people yeah. usually respond to it, especially at this day and age. Like genre doesn't really matter as much as it did yeah. back whenever my dad was growing up, you know? And so a lot of people listen to a lot of different genres. I mean, perfect example. I, I said, I'm a huge Mac Miller fan. I'm also big Ryan Adams, Tom Petty. I mean, I'm into Southern rock. I'm into John Mayer. I'm into white snake. You know, I'm also into seven dust and, you know, shine down. And so, um, I, I think that real, you know, the real music listeners and the people that are there with open ears to try to listen to a new band, I think they're going to be more um, receptive if they've never heard you before, right? Because it's something brand new. Yeah. <clears throat> but, um, you know, on on the Seven Dust tour last year, whenever we were playing that, I tried to, you know, I felt like we were going to be just the the weakest link out of the lineup, even though we were direct support, because we're we're obviously not new metal. Right. But... I went out there and did our thing and then I would play a white snake cover. I even started doing tears for fears, um, just pulling one cover into the set, you know, yeah. every now and then. And it was just hilarious to see how people reacted to that because you've had, you know, these tough metal heads who really want to mosh at the front, but then right. you start playing tears for fears and they start bobbing their head and really, you know, yeah. getting into it and having a drink. And that kind of opens them up to listening to what we have you know, at, at that point, because they've kind of connected with something that they kind of might've known in the past. So, but it, it really depends on the band because, you know, like on the ZZ top stuff, I, I feel like we have to not play our hardest stuff because it's almost too hard for that crowd. Right. Um, I don't know what, when people first see us, you know, our most popular song at the moment is, is a song called happier alone. And that's obviously more of a pop slash alt rock song. But then if you listen to the <clears throat> if you listen to the rest of the Black Sheep album, you know, you've got some heavier stuff, Cave In, Dopamine Drop, um, Creeps, Black Sheep. There's quite a few songs that I would consider fairly heavy on that record that might make a, you know, a Tom Petty fan or or a ZZ Top fan think it's a little bit too heavy. So yeah. I mean you just gotta whatever you're confident in and, and whatever you feel like your band is playing the best at the time. I think that's a big thing. And I mean, it depends too on, I think about this, if we're playing outdoors and it's earlier in the day, yeah. I'm not going to put slow songs in the set because I want to just keep that train rolling and get everybody pumped up. Yeah. If we're playing a later indoor show, I might take a second to slow down the roller coaster for a second and really focus on a guitar solo, you know, like different moments for different rooms kind of a thing. Yeah. That's really <laughs> interesting. I, I've never had an artist talk about, time of day in that but i mean you know a lot of a lot of artists will give a tremendous amount of thought to the sequencing of an album but then you, sometimes it feels like the set list you know for a live event might be a bit haphazard but it, it's really interesting to hear the thought that goes into that because i mean you're right i mean zz top i know from experience i mean that's a when you go to a zz top show doesn't matter who the hell else is on the bill it's a zz top audience um and and you know, you're, you're kind of working to get under them, you know, and to get their attention more so than anything. Um, but I love the fact that, that, you know, you mentioned how bands, the genres don't necessarily have to match perfectly to tour. And I, and I love to see that come around. I, I, 
you know, I remember going to shows in you know eighties and the nineties and even in the early two thousands where you'd have three bands that were almost unidentifiable, you know, where one stopped and the next began. So, um, yeah, instead of three yeah. new metal bands throwing in some stuff like that <laughs> to give it some ebb and flow and, and diversity is a really, really cool thing. Austin, I want to thank you so much. Um, you're going to be in town on the 18th at the, um, doing doing the show and obviously want to re- remind you to check out uh blue side park uh so you can get your mac miller homage on while you're in pittsburgh yeah a pretty short drive uh to that they formally renamed the, the park um that so it'd be worth checking out and and uh can't nice. wait to see you guys when you come in town man thank you so much yeah man i've got a, i've got the mac miller tattoo i'll definitely go hang out hang out over there uh quite a bit and i appreciate you guys getting the word out about the show and we're ready to rock this thing all right a very special thank you to austin mead for coming on the show check him out at the 18th at the craft house uh you can find information on our website at ironcityrocks.com we'll have links uh to that show also joel hoekstra as i mentioned the tickets go on sale on the 16th for the trans-siberian orchestra's tour uh if you're in the sound of my voice they're playing somewhere near you whether you're in Pittsburgh or not, I know for a fact they're playing in Youngstown and probably every other major city in the United States. So um, get yourself some tickets for the first week. They're 25 bucks. Um, you know, that's less than you'll pay for parking probably uh, to that show. So get yourself some tickets to that. Uh, look forward to that. And also some new material from Joel Hoekstra, 13. Um, an amazing, amazing musician, tireless worker, uh, and obviously a guy with a great attitude. Um, because he's perpetually employed in a different situation or another, and that doesn't happen by accident. And also, uh, a very special thanks uh, off the top of the show, we talked to Neil Fallon of the band Clutch. Their new album is out on the 16th as well. You can get that. It's called Sunrise on Slaughter Beach. They will be at Stage AE in Pittsburgh on the 20th of September. So do yourself a favor, get the album on the 16th. While you're online, get yourself some Trans-Siberian Orchestra tickets. You have four days to learn the new material before they hit stage AE. Uh, and in the meantime, you can take a little break if you're, you you know, want to take a break from your clutch music. And on the 18th, head out to see Austin Mead at the Craft House. So there's your homework assignment for this episode. I invite you to check out our website, ironcityrocks.com. We have links to all of the things we talked about on this show, as well as the other 489 episodes that preceded this. So if you enjoyed this and maybe this is your first episode i've had uh, the the blessing to talk to to countless musicians over the last 12 13 years whatever it is at this point so check that as well you can drop us an email ironcityrocks at gmail.com let us know what you like you know or you you want more of of certain kind of music less of certain kinds of music here's a band you've never heard of here's you know my cousin's band and they've got a good quality album let us know um please no uh homemade recordings that sound like homemade recordings i realize technology will let you do amazing things at home now but um you know make sure it's good quality recording and and let us know we'd love to check it out Uh, as you probably realized if you're a listener of iron city rocks we don't really have uh reins on what kind of music we'll go into we go from the heavies to the heavy to uh you know some different directions so let us know about a band. Iron City Rocks are all the social medias. Um, invite you to check us out. I'm on Snapchat. We're on um, Instagram, 
Facebook, obviously, Twitter, YouTube. Um, if there's a media out there, check us out there. So until next time, we want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen.